Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. So good evening. It's nice to see so many beautiful faces, as always. Um, uh, I set myself up a few weeks ago by saying that uh, over the next several months, uh, on Tuesday nights when I'm teaching, uh, we'll go through some of the traditional koan curriculum. So... I guess that's what I have to do. Um, The koan that we're going to explore together tonight uh, goes like this. What is the core of Buddhism? Uh, Teacher, a student asks. Uh, Qingwan responds... What is the price of rice in Luling? I'll read it again. So you you have to picture the scene, okay? And you have to enter the scene. So it doesn't even matter who the people are right now. One person goes to someone else and says, What's the core? And the response is, What's the price of rice in Luling? Uh, If we were going to translate this in contemporary times, it might be, what is the meaning of your life? And somebody responds, what's the price of a taxi on Spadina? (laughs) Or, uh, what's the most important thing? And somebody responds, what's the price of the Keystone XL pipeline? How much does that cost? So... Um, a few words about koans, because some of you might have no idea of what a koan is. Although, I keep thinking, and I haven't checked yet, but if you go to the Webster's Dictionary and you look up under K, probably the word koan is there, because it's such common language now. Uh, anyways, uh, in Zen training, uh, koans are used to intensify somebody's practice. So usually what happens is once someone has some stability and some calmness, we call shamatha, in their meditation practice, then they would be given a question that they would really struggle with. And the question is not um, uh, designed uh, just to make you squirm. 
the question is designed to drop the bottom out in your thinking. And uh, they're always old stories, and they're designed to open up your eyes and to make you want to do something. And so that's the theme that I want to explore explicitly tonight, is this relationship between opening up your eyes and also being motivated uh, to do something. Um, Koans date back to 10th century China. They're highly stylized and edited fragments of dialogues. Um, And although this goes against kind of Zen academic orthodoxy, I really believe that there is no one way to answer each koan that it really comes out of that person's life circumstances. And I'm sure after saying that, somebody will send me an email saying, you know, I'm an academic, you have no idea what you're talking about. Um, The idea is you get a question, and you breathe that question, and you wrestle with that question, and kind of like iron iron filings around a magnet, uh, that question that you're wrestling with will draw out uh, loose conversations that you haven't really uh, inhabited, uh, old grief that you haven't processed, uh, habitual ways of thinking that you haven't really looked at clearly, some loose argument that you're having with yourself again and again and again and again and again. Someone asked after class last week, uh, is there like a traditional form of koans? And the answer is yes. Um, There is a grouping called the Gateless Gate, which itself is a good koan, and it contains 48 koans. Uh, Then there are 100 koans in the Blue Cliff Record. And then there are another 100 koans in the Book of Equanimity. Then after that, you study 53 koans in a text called The Transmission of the Light, which is what we're working with tonight, which details enlightenment experiences from the Buddha all the way to Dogen. And then you do uh, a text called The Five Ranks of Master Tozan, which is 50 koans with a lot of testing questions. And then at the end, there's another group which is 100 koans that test your understanding of ethics. And in some schools, you do that whole curriculum a few times. And it can sometimes take, you know, 5 or 10, 15 years to get through one koan. So basically, (laughs) you get the idea. I don't have to say anything about that. Um, But a few things to think about when we talk about koans, too, because they're so esoteric, the way we talk about them in our culture. The first is, the first thing you should do, sorry, the first thing you could do when you hear a koan is you memorize it. Um, Which nowadays means you get it tattooed on your (laughs) forearm. And then you can reflect on the koan, what's the most important part of this koan? 
Because most of the time, we like the punchline because they seem so clever. But that's not usually the most important part. So you can take the question, what is the core of Buddhism? And the response, what is the price of rice in Lu Ling? And you can just repeat it until you memorize it. And then you can play with it. Like, what's the core? What's the price? What's the meaning? What's the price? Or, what? <laughs> what? Because that's in both of them too, right? You ask a question, what? Because you really need some advice. You know, what? And the person responds, what? <laughs> Imagine that if you had like some therapist you paid a lot of money and you say, what should I do? And they say, what should I do? You know, like that game you play as kids, you know. Um, but really the koans are stories that want to be brought to life and they're stories designed to interrupt your stories because we all tell our stories uh, in habitual ways so the koan comes in as a story just to mess with the way you structure your stories and the answers don't come through your mind or like some stories, they don't come through your, your vocal cords. Uh, they come through your whole body when you're really uh, pressed up against the wall. Or they emerge just when you're doing dishes, or you're with somebody you love, or you're with somebody you hate. I remember once really struggling with a koan for a couple of years, and then I was with someone I hate, and I just saw, I saw the thing. <laughs> Because we all live and breathe stories, and I think sometimes we fantasize that a pure mind is a mind without stories, but it's actually a mind that can generate a much more creative stories. But let's back up to story, the beginning of stories, which is that most of the repetitive stories that we have uh, all come from some time in our life where there was some kind of wound or some kind of feeling of isolation, which is probably what brought you here in this room uh, tonight. And to my mind, all of our problems that started when we were young, uh, and you know, therapists won't agree with this, but I think really come down to two questions at the base of all of our stories. And the first question is, what am I? And the second question is, what should I do? Or, who am I, and what am I supposed to do? And I think there are some character types that really struggle more with one or the other. Like, I think people who become more fascinated with religious life, they really uh, are caught by that first question. Who, who am I, or what am I? And I think people who might be more extroverted or in the world, their question is really like, what should I do? What am I supposed to do? And what I want to explore tonight through this koan is I think you can't separate those two questions. That who you are and what you do are actually the same thing.
And when you see that, your whole life becomes a koan. We wake up in the morning to a broken world, and what you do and how you define yourself is your koan. And we have to do it again and again every day. I, I don't think uh, we're following the Eckhart Tolle model that one day you get enlightened and you're done. <laughs> Actually, our way of practice here is that uh, you're already enlightened. So now you practice. Whenever there is a koan, it's always very short. So this one is very short. But before it, there's always a verse. And the verse is like a commentary that it's more like a framing that comes before the koan to set you up for how to think about the story and how to internalize the story. Now, the verse for this koan is really dense, so I'm going to read it slowly. Um, and you don't have to memorize this part. And it's always filled with like, like nuggets that have lots of like literary references to ancient China and Japan. Anyways, here's how the verse goes. Though you cut off your flesh for your parents, like Siddhartha did, you won't be written up in the books on filial piety. Though you tried to crush the Buddha with a boulder, like jealous Devadatta did when he started a landslide, you won't be struck by lightning. Having walked through the having walked through the sharp bramble thickets, and then through a forest of fragrant flowers, you will still come to the end of the year. As of old, spring always begins with cold. Where is the body that is awake? That's harder than the koan. In other words, uh, though you cut off your flesh for your parents like the Buddha did, is basically saying, um, do good actions like the Buddha did, even for his parents, but don't hold on. Show up at dinner time. Don't be scared of telling them about your new lover. Bring them warm blankets for their cold feet in the hospital. Or show up again and again with an elderly relative who's losing his or her mind. It seems like we're asked to give and give and give all the time. But the thing is, how can you give and not take credit? It's an interesting thing when you're with someone when they're dying. right? You give and you give and you give. You bring them food. You bring them everything they need. You love them. It opens up your own bruised heart. And then they die. And you don't get written up in the books. When there's an obituary, it doesn't list how many hours you stayed at their bedside. So how do you give your whole life to your parents who are getting old, but you don't hold on to that?
In other words, there's no identity in being a good person. You be a good person because it's a, a reflex. But you're not trying to be a good person. Does this make sense a little bit? It's just who you are. But I think this is a major problem in our culture. Because especially in spiritual communities, we have what I think is a pathological form of altruism. People who have read so many books by saints or have pictures of the Dalai Lama on their fridge. And they think, well, I can just give and give and give. Trying to be a saint or the perfect caregiver and forgetting about yourself in the process. So I think of these as edge states of compassion or edge states of empathy. It's where you lose your sense of self in your giving. It's where you lose weight when you're giving. Or you gain weight. You're not eating well. Or you lose sleep. Or you can't get out of bed. Because you've given your vitality away. Um, In medicine, I know many of you know this, there is a really popular term now called compassion fatigue, which is trying to make burnout sound a little, you know, (laughs) more medicinal or whatever. But I think compassion fatigue is really hitting uh, an edge state. And I don't believe there's any such thing as compassion fatigue. I think there can be empathy fatigue, but not compassion fatigue. Because empathy is when somebody is in pain or someone's suffering and you resonate with their suffering. But that's not the same as compassion. Because in compassion, it's not just that we're resonating with someone's suffering, it's that we are mobilized by their suffering to do something. And so it includes us. Empathy doesn't necessarily include us. And I think empathy becomes compassion when you resonate with someone else's suffering. And that resonance shows up in your body, but it's stabilized. And then you can act creatively. You can take loving action. There are, uh, there, there are two neuroscientists who I've been reading a lot lately, uh, Klimeki and Singer. Don't those names sound like two neuroscientists? <laughs> um, and they did uh, some really interesting studies where they noticed how our body's visceral experience, so being able to sense our own heart rate or how our digestion is doing or how our breathing is, is uh, sort of primes us to become more empathic. So they studied people with alexithemia, which is people who uh, can't feel their internal, they can't monitor well internal states. And they showed how people who can't monitor or have access to internal states uh, 
have a marked decrease of empathy. Isn't that interesting? In other words, the, the step from becoming more empathic to becoming compassionate has everything to do with our ability to include ourselves. Otherwise, you get the kind of doormat syndrome. All the women are nodding. I give and I give and I give and I give and I give. And everyone walks over me. Yeah, so what happens when you just resonate with someone's experience, but you're completely out of your mind? So you're stressed out, or you haven't been sleeping. You're not going to respond in a creative way, or to what they might need. A perfect example of this, just to kind of keep it connected to koan practice, is young people. Like, so many times in adolescence, young people have like a question that shows up for them. And it's usually one of these two questions. You could prove me wrong, but this is my theory right now. Who am I? Right? Which includes, like, I'm going to die. How did I end up in this family? <laughs> you know, <laughs> these parents, you know. Um, or, uh, what am I supposed to do? You know, and that's like in the counselor's office. You know, like, what am I supposed to do? Oh, well, you're not good at math, so you shouldn't do that. <laughs> um, what happens when we have a question is it often gets shut down because the adult comes in and answers it. And then the question's shut down. The adult comes in and says, oh, well, when you die, this happens. But the purpose of a koan is when there's a question, you drive the question deeper with another question. You see? So... It's one thing to just be empathic and say, oh, you know, I resonate with that problem. It's another thing to actually let that empathy really fill you from a place where you're stable and it can really open you up. And that's compassion. And I think what we call compassion fatigue is not compassion fatigue. It's empathy fatigue. It's resonating so much with other people's problems, other people's questions, other people's suffering but not being able to move out of it, not being able to work with it, not being able to respond with it, because we, we're not looking after ourselves. Let me give you an example. Um, this is from uh, someone I met recently. He's a, uh, his name's Gary. He's a doctor who works in a hospice with cancer patients. Listen to him describing his work. I'm up late... Admitting patients to the inpatient hospice unit. Just when I think I'm too old for these late nights without sleep, a person in all their rawness, vulnerability, and pain lays before me, and as my hands explore the deep wounds in her chest my, and my ears open to her words, 
my heart cracks open once again. And this night, a sweet 36-year-old woman with her wildly catastrophic breast cancer speaks of her acceptance and her hope for her children, and she speaks with such authenticity and authority. And her acceptance comes to me as the deepest humility a person can experience. And then again, once again, I remember why I stay up these late nights and put myself in the company of the dying. So do you notice how he's included the whole time? It's not just about her. It's both of them together. I want to add to that. Um, Here's the Dalai Lama's definition of spirituality. Here's what he says. Uh, This is recently, uh, last time he was in Vancouver. Spirituality addresses qualities of the human spirit that include love, compassion, patience, tolerance, forgiveness, a sense of responsibility, which brings happiness to oneself and to others. It includes a basic concern for one's well-being and the well-being of others. And it has an emphasis, this is the best part, on contemplation practices, cultivating ethics, stability, and pro-social mental qualities. Does that sound like somebody sitting in a cave, staring at a wall? No, maybe a part of their practice is to sit in the cave and look at the wall. But the Dalai Lama's definition of spirituality ends with this really beautiful term, pro-social mental qualities. The quality that includes us and, and, and motivates us to serve. So back to this verse, though you cut off your flesh, that was a bit of a tangent, but though you cut off your flesh for your parents like Siddhartha did, you won't be written up in the books on filial piety. You don't get any credit. Though you tried to crush the Buddha with a boulder like jealous Devadatta did when he started a landslide, you won't be struck by lightning. So you do something bad and you're going to be punished. We all do stupid things and you should pay for your crimes. And if you suffer the consequences, you'll learn something. Apparently the story goes, if I remember correctly, that Devadatta pushed a boulder because he was jealous of the Buddha, and then he got, uh, he was, uh, when he died, he went into a hell realm, and then while he was in the hell realm, the Buddha felt badly that Devadatta was in a hell realm, so he sent his right-hand man, Ananda, to go to the hell realm and find out how Devadatta was doing. So he goes there and Ananda sees Devadatta and he's in like pure samadhi, content, happy as can be. And then there's this whole conversation about, well, should a person who is in a hell realm, when they die, go to a hell realm? Because if they go to a hell realm, that's kind of like where they're comfortable. (laughs) Anyways, it's a whole story. So that's what's being referred to here. And you should also keep in mind, um, for those of you who might not know the cosmology, In Islam and in Christianity and in uh, Judaism, 
Judaism is a little softer, but especially in Christianity, those religions are very committed to heaven and hell. Uh, but in Buddhism, heaven and hell are considered just uh, 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 mind states. They're temporary. Like you don't like go, like when we say like he went to hell, it doesn't mean like he went to hell. Nowadays, I think scientists have told us that heaven and hell are not in the physical places we thought they were. But the Buddhists have always been saying, well, actually, yeah, they're, they're temporary states of mind. Anyways, um, if you turn out this passage is saying to be unkind, then the remorse you feel when you're unkind can become a beautiful practice. Sometimes a thorny thicket, sometimes a fragrant forest. But the path always leads you to a new year. And a new year always starts with cold. Isn't that beautiful? In other words, uh, when you know who you are, uh, ethical conduct is not about being a good person anymore. Good and bad flow with circumstances, like the price of rice in Luling. What's the price of rice in Luling? Well, I don't know that much about China. Uh, but when I googled Lu Ling and rice, <laughs> I discovered that Lu Ling was known for having very, very good rice. But it was also the place that was the center of rice futures. So when we talk about the price of rice in Lu Ling, it's an interesting comment. Because when you ask a question, what is the core? You're asking an ultimate question. So you'd expect you'd get an ultimate answer, which would be, Rice, it's a real thing, you can bite into it. But the answer is not rice, it's the price of rice, which is as relative as you can get. What's the price of rice in Luling? So when I hear this question, what is the core of Buddhism? I think this is a young man's question. And, I don't, and maybe not a young woman's question. But like a young man's question, like impatient? I know it because I was this young man. Like kind of impatient, not interested in social niceties and form and bowing and all this stuff. Just like, come on, come on, get to the point. Like, how do I get enlightened? <laughs> like, just get me straight in, you know. Tell me, what is the truth? A young man always wants to leap over everything and find out what's the truth. But what truth? What truth could there be separate from all those things? What truth can there be separate from relationship? And relationship is always fluctuating. What truth can there be separate from the price of rice, which is always fluctuating? What do ethics mean if they're not tied to the circumstances of your life, which are always fluctuating? So the teacher responds to his question with a deeper question that drives it into his heart to make him more human. Not a question that's speculative. If someone asks you, what's the meaning of life? Or what's the core of the teachings that you practice? 
you might say, oh, well, I do Vipassana meditation, we sit here, uh, Four Noble Truths, uh, you know, this kind of thing. But he's saying, what's the core of your life? And I think the response with a question is really honoring his question in a very deep way. And how can you divorce it from the fact that he's answering it in a monetary way? It's the price of rice, not the actual thing. And the price of rice is the site of greed and aversion and delusion in ancient China and also in the West. What is the price of rice? It has nothing to do with the production of rice. And it probably didn't then either. And we could probably also imagine that in ancient China, the merchants and the people involved in rice futures were making more money on rice than the people who were producing the rice. That's an amazing thing about banking. You can make a lot of money on a grain of rice. Actually, never mind that. Lately, I've been thinking about how bankers can make a lot of money on nothing. Like, some bankers don't even have anything, and they can make money out of not having anything. You can actually have less than that. You can have, you can have somebody else's debt, and you can make money off someone else's debt. This is an amazing thing. So anyways, I didn't know what to do about this. So I just Googled the price of rice. And I thought, oh, I would end up at the website of some stellar economist uh, in uh, some country that was uh, studying how rice was being produced and problems in the market. But I actually ended up on the Walmart website. (laughs) And I ended up on the Walmart website blog. And it was uh, people who described their experience buying rice from Walmart. So I just wanted to read you a few of these, (laughs) if that's okay. Um, So here's a few. Worst packing I've ever seen. Actually, no packing material at all. My entire 50-pound order was just thrown into a box, three times bigger than it needed to be, and taped shut. Jars, boxes, bags, all just left to bounce around and tear each other up. This was not worth the time and gas to drive to Wally World, which is why I tried the online thing in the first place. Can't tell you a dang thing about the product itself as it was all over the inside of the shipping box and it went in the garbage as fast as possible. That was the first one. (laughs) I will never order this rice again. My kids hate the flavor. My husband fed the rice to the horses. They didn't like it. (laughs) This person goes on. The shipping cost is really acceptable. Only $4.97, and I ordered 80 pounds. Can you picture 80 pounds of rice? And it only cost $4.97. Then the best part, and it arrived within three calendar days. The price is the best I've ever seen, even lower than the cheapest in Asian markets. I don't know where this comes from, but it's cheap. (laughs) Here's a good one. First time I cooked with store brand rice. Love the price and tastes great. 
could not tell the difference between all grains. They were intact, not broken. Tastes like the same rice you can get anywhere else. Five stars. (laughs) Then the next one. Five stars. I have tasted the rice. The flavor is the same as in my mother country. I love it. The rice is an exceptional value that I recommend. It helps a family on a budget and is healthy. My only concern is that delivery was five days late and the box it was in was badly damaged, causing the contents, including the rice, to be open and a mess. The 25-pound bags of sugar that were with it were completely damaged and all over the box and leaking out of it. I left a trail to my car. (laughs) The sugar and the rice was mixed up a little. The pasta was also open. (laughs) I love Walmart. I hope to continue using them as our main food source. But I've had concern with packaging. (laughs) My dog likes rice, and I enjoy making it for her. We don't eat it since there are many insects in it when we wash it. Why are there insects in rice? The dog does not mind at all. (laughs) We prefer rice at Costco that's cleaner and tastier. I brought the rice to my mother who can't digest most kinds of rice. Next time I will get the shipping to her address. A box is heavy if you order the large one. 80 pounds is hard to lift. The packing is no good. It should be in small boxes. I use this rice in a dig box for my ferret. (laughs) He loves digging and twirling in the rice. I keep it in a large Rubbermaid container. I've used this rice in the kitchen, but this big bag of 20 pounds was all for my ferret. Our family does not eat rice. Here's the last one. For making rice, add one cup of sugar. Can you picture this? Combine all ingredients in a two-quart microwave-safe cover dish. Microwave on high power for six minutes, then on low power for 15 minutes. Then remove from microwave and let stand for 10 minutes. And then underneath all the blogs, here's what Walmart had some fine print. Enjoy your rice with no payment for six months. You'll have six months with no payment and no interest if paid in full within six months on orders over $250. Bill Me Later is the quick, easy, secure way to buy rice online without using your credit card. Subject to credit approval. So you can buy 80 pounds of rice. Doesn't matter where it comes from. It's going to ship to you in three days, and you don't have to pay for it for six months. So on average, I think resource-rich countries in the last decade have done really poorly compared to countries that are not um, as wealthy. Uh, Resource-rich countries like Canada... Uh, have economies that have grown very slowly, and inequality has skyrocketed. What's interesting about that is it comes back to our question. 
who are we and what are we supposed to do? So what is the price of rice is the same as what is my life? Same question. That drives the question of what I am into what should I do. I think that when we're in touch with who we are, we know what to do. And this gives us some hope. Hope is this little margin of possibility that there's still some wiggle room to create a new story. And the opposite of that is despair. And despair is really uh, predicated on the idea of certainty. Certainty that all of this is inevitable. Inequality is inevitable. Being lost is inevitable. My life is so busy. I've got so many things to balance. I can't pay attention to these kind of questions. That's all inevitable. So hope is the ground out of which we act. And hope and compassion are exactly the same thing. Hope is not optimism. Optimism is, I think, a toxic belief that everything's going to turn out fine. But hope is a motivating belief that we can be surprised. That we can tell a new story in a new way. I remember when I was training to become a psychotherapist, one of my teachers, James Hillman, used to always say, what you're really looking for is when the patient gets tired of their story and wants to tell it in another way. Hope and despair are both contagious. So it's really important that we know how to work with them. Despair is a time waster and it leads to apathy. And despair is a dead end. If you feel despair and the despair goes on and on and on, you will end up buying a large screen TV and a huge car and watching sports all weekend. Because despair makes no demands on people. But hope demands everything. And despair is really easy when you have comfort. So hope is a very radical thing. And being radical means to be able to tell a more radical story than the culture has going. The word radical has the same etymological root as radish. Something that's underground. 
So being radical is being able to go underground and discover new stories that are more imaginative than the stories being told in this culture whose imagination is being atrophied all the time (laughs) by distraction and rice futures. I've been obsessed, thanks to Aaron Robinson, with a teach, uh, uh, a writer named Rebecca Solnit. Um, let me tell you what she writes uh, about this. The North American tradition seems to focus its activity on the expose, the telling of the grim underside of what we know. The food is poison, the system is corrupt, the leaders are lying, The war is failing. There's a place for this, but you cannot base a revolution on the bad things the status quo forgot to mention. You need to tell the stories they're not telling. To learn to see where they are blind. To look at how the great changes of the world come from the shadows and the margins, not center stage. To see where we're winning and that we can win something that matters, if not everything, all the time. Isn't that beautiful? When we go deep into our hearts, we know that the secret of happiness is serving others. And that serving others also includes ourselves. So we always ask this question, what should I do? But what if instead we should ask the other question, what's needed? And what if instead of asking, who am I, we also just ask, what's needed? Sometimes for a while in your life, you might know who you are. And you might know what you're supposed to do. And then one day, you don't know what you're supposed to do anymore. And I think it's really kind of narcissistic to continue a spiritual practice always asking, who am I and what am I and what should I do? Instead, maybe we should just focus less on ourselves and look around and ask, what's needed? And let that determine who you are. Because who you are is like the price of rice. It's always fluctuating. It's not separate from the circumstance. Instead of asking, should I be a therapist? Should I be a lawyer? Should I write another book? Should I make a film? Go look around and just say, what's needed? And then whatever skills you have will be magnetized. Whatever friends you have can be brought together in a network. We live in a society where you're supposed to do one thing. You're supposed to have a calling. But every day when you wake up, the price of rice changes. Every day when you wake up, you don't have to be the same person that you were the day before. Even when the pressure in the culture around you always wants you to be that same person. 
When I think of some of the best moments with my parents, it was when there were times where they weren't acting like my parents. So what's the price of rice? I'll stop here. So let's take a few minutes and see what you have to say. What's the price of rice? <laughs>